morning, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, if you are using the Bibles that we provide for you, you'll find our passage on page 971. 971. This morning, I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 1 in its entirety, uh, and then we'll be uh, looking at the passage as a whole. So Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come." And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we are just what a privilege it is to gather as your people and to turn once again to the scriptures and to hear you speak to us through your word. Father, we pray that you would Come now by your Spirit. We pray, Father, that we would hear your voice. And Lord, that we would respond in faith and obedience. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, I hope everyone had a uh, wonderful Thanksgiving. I know that after Thanksgiving dinner, everyone's mind quickly turns to Christmas. 
And so uh, I want to let you know that next week we will actually be starting a five-week Christmas series in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, this series will be a little bit unique for us because uh, each Sunday a different elder will be preaching uh, one of the passages that we'll be working through in the Gospel of Luke as we uh, walk through the birth of Jesus together. And so I hope you'll plan to be here next week as Jesse Holmes, our discipleship pastor, uh, will be kicking off our series. I also want to let you know that next Sunday, December 4th, will be the first Sunday that we will be collecting our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so we are encouraging everyone to bring uh, your first and best gift next Sunday uh, for our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Uh, And then we'll continue to collect the offering through the month of December and January. Uh, Of course, we collect tithes and offerings throughout the year for our annual budget, but this is the only special offering that we do throughout the year. And I want to remind you that all of the money that is collected goes to support our international missionaries who are serving with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. On that note, I do just want to take a moment to say that on November 13th, Sunday, November 13th, so a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity uh, to attend for the first time uh, the International Mission Board's commissioning service. I'd never been to one before. They held uh, the one this year in Augusta, and uh, I'll have to say it was powerful. Um, They commissioned 24, I believe it was 24, first-time, full-time missionaries uh, that evening at the commissioning service. And in my mind, the most powerful moment that evening was when those missionaries were able to come up to the stage, and each one of them shared a little bit about themselves, their lives, and where they would be going to serve. And among those who came forward, there were singles, and there were some who were married, uh, there were some who were young, and there were some who were retirees, Uh, there were some who had no children. There were some who had three, four, five children. And uh, it seemed that all of them were going to difficult, challenging places where there is little to no access for the gospel. And so many of them, one after another, came from good, healthy churches that I know and respect. I have to say, the evening was, it was sobering, uh, it was humbling. It was exhilarating, and it was so encouraging. And those 24 missionaries, that's just 24 of over 3,000 missionaries with the IMB who are ministering across the world. Of course, one of the best parts of the night was that one of our own, uh, Penelope, was commissioned that night uh, to be a full-time missionary with the International Mission Board. So our goal this year, is it $40,000? Is that right, Stephen? Our goal this year is $40,000. And I want to encourage all of us to give prayerfully and generously and sacrificially to support our missionaries. Now, what is it, as we think about missions, what is it that compels us to give and to pray and to send and to go so that Christ might be known among the nations. When our text this morning, we learn from the Apostle Paul, the consummate missionary, that it is humble gratitude 
And it is a holy zeal for the glory of God and His grace that compels us to take the, nation, take the gospel to those who have never heard, to take the gospel to the nations. And so, this morning, I want us to return to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, over the last four weeks, I broke Ephesians chapter 1 into four parts and preached a sermon on each part. But this week, what I want us to do is take a step back and look at the chapter as a whole. Because as I was preaching through Ephesians chapter 1 over the last several weeks, there were any a number of things that I wanted to speak on, more, uh, you know, give more um, information about or speak uh, to more fully, uh, but was unable to do so because of time. So I want us to return to Ephesians chapter 1, look at the chapter as a whole, and focus on some of those themes. I've entitled our message this morning, The Glory of the Triune God Through the Resurrection Power of Jesus. The Glory of the Triune God Through the Resurrection Power of Jesus. And these are the three themes that I want us to consider this morning in our text. So this is our outline. First of all, the triune God. Secondly, the glory of God. And third, the resurrection power of Jesus. Now first, let's consider the triune God. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, of course you have the greeting. It begins with the greeting. But then when you start in verse 3, from there forward, really Ephesians chapter 1 can be broken up into two main sections. The first section is found in verses 3 through 14. And this is a section of praise and doxology as Paul praises the Lord for his great work of redemption. The second section is found in verses 15 through 23, and it is a section of prayer as Paul prays that these great truths of God's salvation and redemption would be applied to the hearts of the believers in Ephesus. Now, here's what I want you to note, is that both these sections, the doxological section, praising God for his great work of redemption, the section of prayer as Paul is praying that these truths of God's salvation would be applied to the hearts of the Ephesians, both of these sections are Trinitarian in nature. Now what do I mean by that? What do I mean by Trinitarian? Well, as Christians, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. That means that we believe that God is one in being and He is three in persons. In fact, our church has a confession of faith. And in our confession of faith, we state what it is that we believe as a church. And the second statement in our confession reads, the triune God. We believe that there is one and only one living and true God. He is an infinite, intelligent spirit, the creator and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, glorious in holiness and worthy of all worship, trust, and love. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection, executing distinct but complementary offices in the great work of redemption. So there's a definition in our own confession of faith as a church in the doctrine of the Trinity, what we believe about the triune God of the Bible. Now, where do we find the Trinity in the Bible? Where do we find the Trinity in the Bible? Well, in one sense, I would say, 
nowhere, and in another sense, I would say everywhere. Okay? So let me explain. In one sense, nowhere. What I mean by that is we don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. Nor is there a place that we can turn to in the Bible where we find this very precise, exact definition of the Trinity or a full explanation or exposition on the doctrine of the Trinity. Rather, what we find is that the triune nature of God is taught and shown and assumed everywhere in the Bible. So, the triune nature of God is interwoven into and demonstrated throughout all the various stories and teachings of the Bible. And that, in fact, is what we see in Ephesians chapter 1. So, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's praise in verses 3 through 14 is Trinitarian, right? Notice in verses 3 through 6, Paul rejoices that God the Father has purposed our salvation. So in verse 3, He, that is God the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Or verse 5, He, that is God the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons. But then notice in verses 7 through 10, Paul rejoices that God the Son accomplished our salvation. So in verse 7, in Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then in verses 11 through 14, Paul rejoices that God the Spirit applies the work of salvation to our hearts. So, you see there in verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So Paul's praise is Trinitarian. He praises the Father, he praises the Son, he praises the Spirit each for their role in the great work of redemption. But then notice also that Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 is Trinitarian. So the prayer is found in verses 15 through 23, but look specifically at verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God, that is God the Father, Of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's God the Son, the Father of glory, so there Paul identifies God as God the Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, that's God the Spirit, in the knowledge of Him, that's God the Father. So notice here, Paul cannot faithfully speak about our salvation, he cannot faithfully speak about prayer without making use of Trinitarian language. And there's so many examples that we could give of this throughout the Bible. One more example, a couple weeks ago we had the privilege and opportunity to celebrate the baptism of Michaela George, and I baptized her according to the command of Jesus in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We cannot speak of Christian baptism without making use of Trinitarian language. So how do we know that the Bible teaches the Trinity? It's not a single verse that we point to necessarily, although there's many, many verses we could point to. But it's not just one single verse that has the concise definition of the Trinity. 
It's not just one chapter that provides a full definition or explanation of the Trinity. Rather, the triune nature of God is assumed and taught and interwoven into the whole of Scripture. Now, why is this important? There are many reasons why this is important, but let me just give two briefly, okay? First, the doctrine of the Trinity is important if we want to know who God is. It's important if we want to know who God is. So the Bible is full of all this kind of Trinitarian language, right? So we come across phrases like, or statements like, the Lord your God is one. Or, I am Yahweh and there is no other God besides me. Or, I am Lord, I alone am God. And then we encounter all this language of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as we read this morning in the Gospel of John, how they relate to one another. And so this naturally raises all kinds of questions. Do we worship one God? Or do we worship three gods? Well, my friends, we are not polytheists. We do not worship multiple gods. Rather, we worship one God, the one true and living God, who is not three gods, but three persons within the Godhead. Another question. Are the Father and the Son and the Spirit all God? Or is God the Father God, and the Son and the Spirit are like demigods, less than God? No. There is no inequality in the Godhead. Each person in the Godhead is fully divine. Or, are the Father and the Son and the Spirit the same? Or are they three distinct persons? They are three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and so forth. They are each three distinct persons. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity helps us to take into full account what the Bible has to say about God, how the Scriptures reveal God to us, And the doctrine of the Trinity helps us to maintain the mystery of the triune nature of God. So the doctrine of the Trinity is important if we want to know who God is. Secondly, the doctrine of the Trinity is important if we want to know how God relates to us. The doctrine of the Trinity is important if we want to know how God relates to us. So, one author points out that John Calvin once wrote that if we try to think about God without thinking in terms of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, then Calvin writes, quote, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. So let me state that again. John Calvin says that if we think about God, but without the categories of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then, quote, 
only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. In other words, we just have kind of this vague, abstract notion of some God out there. But it's when we come to speak of God as Father and Son and Holy Spirit and begin to understand how they relate to one another and how they relate to us that we come to know God not just as an abstraction, but for who He truly is. In this way, the doctrine of the Trinity is so vital to understanding how God relates to us. And understand, I think this is so wonderful. This is in fact how the Apostle Paul teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. The Apostle Paul does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity with academic definitions. Or elaborate philosophical explanations. Although those things can be helpful. Rather, the Apostle Paul teaches us the doctrine of the Trinity with practical and pastoral application. That's what he's doing here in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is essentially saying this to us. He's modeling it for us in Ephesians 1 as he prays. And we see this all throughout his writings. Paul says, I want you to pray this way. To the Father, with faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. In church in Ephesus, I want you to know that's how I pray for you. I pray to the Father, through the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And see, we learn then, through that, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is how God relates to me. This is how God relates to me. He hears my prayers and gives attention to my prayers as a father. And and I can come to him and relate to him as father because he gave his son as a sacrifice for my sins. And he draws me to himself and he enables me to pray to him by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is how God relates to me. This is who he is. And this is how I know him. Listen, my friends, all of us would do well to grow more fully in our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. There's a number of ways we can do that. Of course, by reading the scriptures, we can consult certain creeds or confessions, like I cited our church's confession of faith just a few moments ago. There's certain books we can read that are really accessible and helpful in terms of explaining the doctrine of the Trinity. But I want to encourage you this morning with this. I want to encourage you with this. That for many of you, although you may not be an expert in the historical debates regarding the Trinity or all of the theological definitions regarding the Trinity, through your consistent reading of the Bible and through living in Christian community with other believers, you have a real and a personal and a warm knowledge of the triune nature of God. You have come through reading the Bible and living in Christian community with God to know the triune God of the Bible. So that you can say with confidence, I believe in the one true and living God and there is no other God. And He is my Father who has purposed to save me before the creation of the world. 
And he redeemed me by the sacrifice of his own son. And he has sealed me for the day of redemption by his Holy Spirit. You see, that's no vague, abstract notion of who God is. Our God is not the vague, abstract God of the agnostics. Our God is not Allah, the God of Islam. Our God is not a demigod, like one of the many demigods of Hinduism. Our God is the triune God of the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He relates to us as such. Paul demonstrates that for us here in Ephesians chapter 1. So that's the first point. The triune God. Secondly, second point. The glory of God. The glory of God. So in Ephesians chapter 1, not only do we learn that God is triune in His nature, we also learn that God is glorious. And He has designed salvation in such a manner that He is to receive all the glory and all the honor and all the worship and all the praise for His great work of redemption. Now, Let me show this to you in the text. Notice that throughout Ephesians chapter 1, God is the actor. We see this in the verbs that Paul uses to describe our salvation. So notice, it is God in verse 3 who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In verse 4, it is God who chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, it is God who predestined us for adoption as sons. In verse 8, it is God who lavished the riches of His grace upon us. In verse 9, it is God who made known to us the mystery of His will. In verse 13, it is God who sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. So God is the actor in Ephesians chapter 1 over and over and over again. And then notice the tremendous emphasis that the Apostle Paul places on the sovereign, determinative will of God in our salvation. Of course, we've seen in verse 4, He chose us. In verse 5, He predestined us. In verse 9, He made known to us. But then notice this as well. Listen to Paul's language in verse 5. He predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Here it is, according to the purpose of His will. Or verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. Or verse 11. He predestined us according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I mean, could Paul emphasize the sovereign activity of God in salvation with any more emphasis? John Stott writes, quote, God the Father's initiative is set forth plainly, for He Himself is the subject of almost every main verb in these verses. Thus the whole paragraph is full of God the Father who has set His love and poured His grace upon us and who is working out His eternal plan. End of quote. Now, why is this important? It's important because, and and Paul makes this very clear in the text, I'm going to show you here in just a moment, 
Because God has designed salvation this way so that He might receive all the glory. Now notice this. Go Look at verse 5. Go to verse 5. Look there. Paul writes, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Verse 6, here's why. To the praise of His glorious grace. That's why He predestined us to be adopted as His sons. So that His grace and His glory might be praised. Or look at verse 9. Actually, verse 8. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, here it is, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Why? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So again, why did He predestine us? To save us so that we would hope in Christ, so that His glory might be praised. And then again, look in verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Here it is, to the praise of His glory. So why has He given us His Spirit and sealed us for the day of redemption? So that His glory might be praised. Now this is why it's important. And it might not be important to you, but it's important to God. And therefore, it should be important to you. And it should be important to me. Because this is the question. This is the issue at hand. Who gets the glory for our salvation? God or us? Is it like 50-50? Is it 70-30? Is it 90-10? Or is the Reformation principle really true? Sola Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. And listen, my friends, this is not the only place where God speaks of our salvation and redemption like this. God speaks this way through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. Listen to the words of the Lord through the prophet. For my namesake. In other words, for my glory. For my namesake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it from you. That I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So listen, my friends, God delights with great love and affection to redeem us and to save us. And in so doing, He is rightfully jealous that He would receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. Of course, this is important because we are all tempted to sneak some glory for ourselves To credit ourselves and God's great work of redemption. 
In fact, I would say that some folks are so uncomfortable with Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 1 that they perform all kinds of interpretive gymnastics in order to diminish what Paul says here about the absolute sovereignty of God in our salvation. Based on their interpretation of Ephesians chapter 1, we might think that Ephesians 1 reads this way, quote, Blessed be the church in Ephesus and all those who are members of it, because you have secured all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places for yourself. For before time existed, it was evident that you would choose God and trust in Jesus. Because you trusted in Jesus, you predestined yourself to be adopted as sons into the family of God according to the purpose of your own will, to the praise of your glorious wisdom, which He has caused you to be blessed, which has caused you to be blessed in Jesus. Because we trusted in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, which God lavished upon us because we purpose to trust in Christ. And our wisdom and insight to trust in Jesus ensures that one day God will be able to unite all things together in Jesus. In Jesus we have come to belong to God, having been predestined according to our own purpose. We who determine our futures and our salvation according to the counsel of our own wills, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be honored and praised. In Christ Jesus you were also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, were sealed by the Holy Spirit, who guarantees that we will belong to God if we choose to continue to trust in Him to the praise of our glory. But my friends, that's not what Paul wrote, is it? It's not what Paul wrote at all. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is not eager to prop up our own ego or to stroke our own pride, but rather Paul is writing to put on display and magnify and exalt the glory and the honor and the power and the praise of God in his redemption. And this, my friends, is part of what it means to know the triune God of the Bible. It means to honor Him, to make much of Him, to glorify Him. For He is worthy of all honor and praise. So we see in Ephesians chapter 1 the triune God. Secondly, we see the glory of God. And then third and finally, we see the resurrection power of Jesus. The resurrection power of Jesus. In verses 15 through 23, as I mentioned earlier, we have Paul's prayer there for the church in Ephesus. And in 15 through 23, Paul is praying that these glorious doctrines of salvation that he has revealed here would be applied to the hearts of the believers in Ephesus. And specifically, he prays that they would know God and that they would know God by his spirit as the spirit works in their lives and opens the eyes of their hearts so that they would see Him for who He truly is. In particular, and we considered this a few weeks ago as we were working through Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that they would know the hope of God's calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and then the final thing that Paul prays for them is that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards them. Now, the power that Paul has in mind is Paul is praying that we as believers would experience God's power in our lives. The power that Paul has in mind is the power of the resurrected Christ. And we know that because he tells us. So look there in verse 19. 
he prays in verse 19 that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, here it is in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So that's the power that Paul wants us to know and experience. The power of God raising Christ from the dead. But not only that, Paul goes on. He wants us to know the power of God in the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. So look there again in verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, here it is, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Paul wants us to know the power of God and the ascension of Christ into heaven. And Paul wants us to know the power of God in the exaltation of Christ as sovereign over all things, including the church. Look there in verse 22. And he put him, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, all of that, I think, can be summarized in the resurrection power of Jesus. But if we break it up into its particular parts, as Paul has done here, it is to know the power of God in Him raising Christ from the dead, to know the power of God in Him bringing Christ into heaven, ascended into heaven to sit at His right hand. It is to know the power of God in God exalting Christ as sovereign and ruler and reigner over all things. Now, do you see what is happening here in this prayer? Paul begins by praying for the Ephesians, right? And then his prayer quickly becomes an exposition on the person and the power of Jesus Christ and our union with Him. So we get about three or four verses of prayer... And then we get about three or four verses focused on the person and power of Jesus Christ. And this really is altogether fitting because you remember how we entitled this series in Ephesians chapter 1. It's actually on the front of your bulletin. The title of the series is In Him. In Him. And this idea dominates Paul's understanding of the Christian life. In fact, that phrase, in Christ or in Him, is used over 160 times in Paul's writings. I counted in Ephesians chapter 1 that that phrase is used 14 times. So in reality, the whole Christian life can be summed up in this idea. Union with Christ. We are in Him and He is in us. And this is critical to understanding our Christian life and critical to understanding the spiritual life and power that is ours in Christ. So Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus and then quickly he transitions to focusing on the person of Christ. And he says, I want you to know who Christ is because Christ is in you. And that's how you know the resurrection power of Christ. Because you've been united to Him. He's in you. So, what does this look like in our lives? Let me me quickly mention three ways that Christians experience the resurrection power of Jesus. 
The first way we experience the resurrection power of Jesus is through the grace of salvation. The grace of salvation. In fact, this is Paul's immediate application. So go back to verse 19. Paul prays that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And then he elaborates. He goes on. And then... When we come to chapter 2, he says, oh, and by the way, you've experienced that power in your conversion. Look there at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. And then he goes on to speak about our deadness, how dead we were in our sins and trespasses. How totally lifeless we were and unresponsive to God and to the gospel. And then in verse 4 he writes, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's resurrection, right? By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him. There's resurrection. And seated us with Him. That's ascension in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I want you to know the resurrection power of Christ in your life. And by the way, you already know it because you've been saved. You've been redeemed. And Christian conversion is nothing less than a spiritual resurrection from the dead. As I read this passage, I'm reminded of a biographical address that John Piper gave years ago on John G. Patton. If you've never heard it, please find it online and listen to it. John G. Patton, he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the 1900s, early 1900s. Everyone who had gone before Patton to the New Hebrides Islands had been killed because the people who lived on the islands were cannibals. And Patton went... And God in His grace and mercy protected Patton and preserved his life for many years as he faithfully lived among them and shared the gospel. And over a number of years of faithful ministry, he finally had one convert. And as he was converted, he gave him a Christian name, Abraham. And Patton at one point is, he's in the New Hebrides Islands, but he's hearing about what's happening in the West, in Europe, and how the church is drifting from the gospel, drifting from the veracity and truthfulness of Scripture. And he's thinking about what's happening in the West, in the Western church, and what's happening in the New Hebrides Islands where he's ministering. And he comes to the conclusion that the reason why the church in the West is drifting from the Christian gospel, drifting from the truthfulness of Scripture, is because they have failed to know and experience the reality of the resurrection power of Jesus in conversion. They've forgotten about it. And this is what he writes. Quote, When I have read or heard the shallow objections of irreligious scribblers and talkers hinting that there was no reality in conversions and that mission effort was but waste, oh, how my heart has yearned to plant them just one week on Tana 
with the natural man all around in the person of cannibal and heathen, and only one spiritual man in the person of the converted Abraham, nursing them, feeding them, saving them for the love of Jesus. That I might just learn how many hours it took to convince them that Christ in man was a reality after all. All the skepticism of Europe would hide its head in foolish shame, and all its doubts would dissolve under one glance of the new light that Jesus and Jesus alone pours from the converted cannibal's eye. End of quote. Essentially what Patton is saying here is, if, if those skeptics in Europe could meet Abraham, a former cannibal, who now radiates in his eyes with the love of Jesus, they would not doubt the veracity of Scripture or the power of the Gospel or the power of Jesus to raise the spiritual dead. And my friends, if you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have experienced something of the resurrection power of Jesus. He has rescued you from death and granted you life. Secondly, we experience the resurrection power of Jesus through victory over sin. Through victory over sin. In my Bible reading, I've recently been reading through Romans chapter 6 through 8. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6 through 8 that we are united with Christ. And in being united with Christ, our old person, our old self has been crucified with Christ. So that we are free from the bondage and the power of sin. It's been broken in our lives. And of course, we still struggle with sin. We still battle with sin in various ways, but it no longer has the same dominion and power over our lives that it once did. And Paul says, not only have we been crucified with Christ so that the old person is put to death, but in addition, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead now dwells in us. So that, as Paul says, we can walk in newness of life. And how do we experience that power? How do we experience that victory over sin? Paul says it's through faith. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider there can be translated reckon, count, believe. So you also must consider, reckon, count yourself, believe yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1, our text this morning? In Ephesians 1.19, he's, he's praying that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power. Notice, toward us who believe. It's as we believe and trust that we are united with Christ that our old man has been put to death, that He's filled us with His Spirit and we possess that Spirit, that we are able to walk in newness of life. I no longer have to bow my knee to sin and live under its reign and dominion. But by the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead and dwells in me, by that same Spirit and by the grace of God, I turn from sin and walk by faith and in obedience to Jesus. My friends, the resurrection power of Jesus can and should enable us to experience real victory and progress in our battle against sin. And then third and finally, we experience the resurrection power of Jesus in our lives in faithfulness through suffering. Faithfulness through suffering. 
We've been talking a lot about international missions and the call to proclaim the gospel to the nations and whether we're proclaiming Christ here in our own context or in another context that is particularly hostile to the gospel overseas perhaps. Either way, we will at various times experience opposition and hardship. And how do we endure? How do we persevere? How do we remain faithful? It is by the resurrection power of Jesus in us. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. See, Paul says, I'm proclaiming Christ. How am I doing it? By the the working and power of Christ in me. In another place, Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? The resurrected Christ. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, Jesus prefaced the Great Commission by saying, all authority and power has been given to me. And what authority and power is Jesus talking about? What's the authority and power that the Apostle Paul is speaking of here in Ephesians chapter 1? It's the power of God in His resurrection. It's the power of God in His ascension. It's the power of God in His enthronement, His sovereign over all. And it is by that power, it is by that authority that we will be helped and sustained, and empowered, and strengthened, and preserved, so that we're faithful to His mission. Tim Keller writes, quote, When we believe in Christ, we are united with Him, both legally and vitally, in His life, and death, and His ascension. Paul calls himself a man in Christ. It utterly dominated Paul's self-understanding, and it must dominate ours. End of quote. And my friends, do you know what happens when we are saved and we are sanctified and we endure suffering, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the resurrected, ascended, exalted, sovereign Christ? God, the triune God of the Bible, gets the glory and we get the joy. The glory of the triune God through the resurrection power of Jesus. And it is ours through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. And we thank you, Lord, for your great work of redemption. God, may we know you as you truly are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May it be our great joy to walk by faith in the resurrection power of Jesus. And when all is said and done, may we give you all the glory and honor and praise. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.